Hello and welcome to the Dan Assor Show, inspiring and insightful conversations with event professionals. The Dan Assor Show is supported by headline sponsor Jonas Event Technology, an award-winning event registration supplier for organisers of trade shows, exhibitions and conferences. The show's official venue sponsor is conference and exhibition venue Business Design Centre, which has just become B Corp certified, showing its high standards of social and environmental impact. The show is also supported by TF Connect, Tarsus Group, Terrapin and 19 Group. Hello and welcome to the show, Jamie Leonard. How are you doing today? Yeah, Dan, good to be here, Fada. Thank you. Good. So we, we are going to talk about all things Wreckfest, both the, the UK version and also the, the recent one that's been happening over in Tennessee. For those that aren't aware, Jamie, and I'm sure they're few and far between, because I'm sure everyone knows you in the business now, but if anyone's listening, just tell me about the Recruitment Events Company, which is obviously the business that you run, which obviously runs Wreckfest as well. Just give us a brief intro, please. Yeah, sure. So Recruitment Events Company services the talent acquisition, talent acquisition space it has predominantly been the UK over the years. So we have two brands that we work within. One is the Resource and Leader 100, which is our peer senior network leadership community. And the second one is Wreckfest. Wreckfest is a full business festival, operates now as the largest event in the world for talent acquisition. Last year was around 5,000 people. Next year will go to 6,000. And that's predominantly UK, bleeding some into Europe. And then recently we launched Wreckfest in, in the US, as you say, Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of weeks back. Sure. And we're going to get into that. But I just want to bring you to life for the viewers and the listeners. Uh, always interested, always interesting, I think, for them to hear sort of your journey to starting the business. Would you call yourself an entrepreneur? I mean, I would from an outsider looking in. Oh, you know what? I, I hate that term entrepreneur only because I grew up in a generation of The Apprentice and, and everyone on that show, you know, it was, I just, they give entrepreneurs a bad name, but no, yeah, I suppose, I suppose not a, an entrepreneur business owner. Sure. I'll take either of those. And so let me take you back sort of to your younger years. When you were growing up, did you think you always wanted to do your own thing, like in some way, shape or form? You know, when I speak to people, some people are like, yeah, I was always buying and selling in the playground and this is what I wanted to do. And, I, you know, the thought of working for somebody else, yeah. I know you did, we'll get into that in a minute, w w wouldn't be right for me. But just, just give us a sense, like. Yeah, I do fall into that sort of that that classic selling stuff in the playground. I, I always wanted to work for myself. I, I, I story I told someone recently, one at a local sports store was closing down and they were selling footballs for like a pound each and I ended up buying 30 of them and reselling them to the school that I went to for like three pounds each. Thought it was a really good deal. Got called in by the headmaster a week later to find out the, the balls were defected and they, they deflated every time they tried to pump them up. So a lot of a lot of stories like that, sort of buying and selling within school, getting suspended a few times for <laughs> you know, selling stuff that, that probably shouldn't have been selling. But you know, it's, it's the, the classic. Sure entrepreneur story yeah. so yeah no absolutely always knew that i wanted to do something myself just finding the right opportunity sure. i suppose but you did end up working for others for around 10 years if i if i'm not mistaken in various shapes before. yeah so how did you sort of square that in your own mind were you sort of like a frustrated employee like working for somebody else 
I, I got to be honest, with you, I think that when I got into the working world, I lost the idea that maybe I'll go and do my own thing for a long time. Sure. But I realized after a while that I was really difficult to employ. I was really difficult to, to kind of manage as a person because I always knew the right answer. You know, I always had the best idea and it would, you know, change the business if people would just listen to me. And clearly, you know, most of them were rubbish and my bosses were right not to listen to me. But yeah. It was it was a fr it was always is always a frustration because I always wanted to go you know ten miles an hour quicker sure and a lot of the time it was like no listen we need to we need to slow down so yeah I mean I, I worked for you know Monster which was it still is a job board within the TA space and that really was a hard nosed sales environment that was proper you know ring the bell get to the end of the month you know hit your number or if if not you know why not. So I think it gave me a really good upbringing in a in a in a structured sales environment, which I think when you're starting anything, regardless of whether it's an event business or a media business, you know, having sales skills is a kind of base level of what you need because ultimately you're going to be selling the product from day one, and if you can't do that, your chances are you know you won't see day two. So that and some of the other places I worked within the TA space, the job market just give me that sales grounding. Sure. You know, you've got to hit a run rate. We have to, you know, look at yield, all the basic stuff that commercial gives you. And, you know, I think that's a really good grounding for when you start a company. So it served you in good stead. So that, that's interesting. So it wasn't, you don't see it as sort of, you know, I wish I'd started what I'm doing 10 years young earlier. You actually see it as I've got experience. It gave me experience in certain areas that I'm now bringing to, to bear in my current business. Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, so... Tell us about, I was going to say light bulb moment, but it might not have been. It might be something, you know, you were working in the talent acquisition space. It's not like you're doing something completely different to what where, you know, the industry you're still working yeah. in. Tell us about where the idea sort of arose to allow you to go off and do your own thing and actually what the idea was. And, you know, was it very different to, to where you sit now? Just interested to know if it was a light bulb moment, if something specifically happened. Just give us an idea, a sense yeah, sure. So myself and my wife were both made redundant within various companies of about three months apart of each other. We was pregnant with our first child, probably three months to go before she was born. We were renting a, a flat in Farringdon with, you know, no sort of equity or property. So decided to do the sensible thing and take the money from redundancy and start a company, sure. which is really dumb idea. And no one should ever do it because it's super risky. You know, a lot of people would have gone out and bought a house and, you know, okay, we'll go and find another job. But we, we took the, the path less, less traveled. So you kind of had to make it work from, from day one. Baby was due in three months time. You know, babies are expensive. <laughs> we need to make money out of this thing straight away. Yeah. What, what we launched with and what we have now are two sure. very different things. We launched with a small scale speed networking, almost speed dating for business within the talent acquisition uh, space. And it, and it was fine and it was great. And, you know, we, we did that for four or five, well, four years. And it, it ticked over and it made some money, but it was never going to scale to 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 the point of making serious money or or, or, or sort of taking us to where we, we wanted to be. And sure. I was in a bar after one of the events around seven o'clock at night. And, you know, sometimes when someone's talking about you, you, you stop listening to the conversation you're having and you start listening to the conversation <laughs> someone else is having. Yeah. And their, their comment was, this is a nice little events company, but they'll never do a bigger a big event. They'll never compete with the big event companies within our yeah. space. And 
that's that's red rag to a ball to me. I, I don't like being told what I can't do. It, it, it kind of I wouldn't say it's a light bulb, more of a rocket that went, okay, well, let's let's go and prove you wrong on this one. If that's what people think about me and that's what people think about our business, let's let's go and show them something different. And you know, I've always big been a big festival lover. Yeah. I always, you know, I love the Glastonbury's, love the Isle of Wight festivals. And for me, the bit about festivals is it, it is about the music. And, and I, I, I always, you know, you go for the music, but it's the connections you get with other human beings at those events that are, is what makes it so special. And it's what keeps it, keeps people coming back. If it was just the music, you listen to it on Spotify, sure. it's probably a, a you know, a, yeah. a better experience. So I just thought, well, why can't we evolve our events and our space into something like this? Because events in talent acquisition at the time were, were terrible. Sure. They were beige walls. They were, you know, crap content, you know, coffee and a sandwich at lunchtime and a glass of red wine towards the end of the day. And nothing was there really to connect people at all. It was just, you know, turn up, listen to the content and leave. So we, we went with this idea that if we could take the festival format and we could bring it into the world of talent acquisition, we may have something. And that was the moment we went, okay, this is what we're going to go and do. And we launched our first our first breakfast event. So, which is amazing because it also meant that you, so you obviously had knowledge and experience of the market. You were doing something that you enjoyed, i.e. festival, right? So yep. I guess you had an idea of what people would want sort of in that environment. But I guess you didn't have an idea, correct me if I'm wrong, how to put that sort of event together, right? Because you hadn't done that before. No. So what gave you the confidence? No, I hadn't. No. Could- what gave you the confidence? Stupidity. Pure. <laughs> yeah, just pure, pure stupidity. It was pure, pure stupidity and arrogance as well. You know, and pure arrogance as well that you look from the outside and say this is pretty easy. Look, if you look at the first year of Wreckfest, it was a hundred people. We begged every single one of them to turn up. Sure. It was, you know, probably more of a conference with AstroTurf on the ground and day drinking, and that was that was it. You know, it wasn't what you see today. Sure. So, you know, it was taking that every year and then, okay, how can we double it? So every year we tried to get twice as many people, twice as many sponsors. And slowly we could start to afford better venues. And all of a sudden you start to look at places like Borough Market, which we did one year, and Hawker House or the HMS President. And these these environments that were starting to become more extravagant, but also create more of an experience for people. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we got to sort of year three, we started to notice it was teams attending as opposed to one or two people. Yeah. And then we started to dig into that and say, well, why, why are we getting three people from you know Tesco's as opposed to one person? And it started to become their annual celebration. It started to become their day of the year where they went out and celebrated themselves and they learned content and they, they celebrated with their peers. And we just lent into that. We was like, well, if, if, if the audience thinks this is their celebration, let's go down that route. Let's really push into that. And and that's what we did. And that's where the scale of Wreckfest really came from, was people coming back in, in numbers. Yeah. And our return rates on, on business was absolutely huge because it was their day. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just going to take a brief pause to tell you a little bit about the Dan Assel Show headline sponsor, Jonas Event Technology. Jonas Event Technology, or JET, are an award-winning supplier of event registration dedicated to providing event organizers with a seamless registration experience and excellent customer service. 
as proven by their current NPS score of 71. JET provides a full registration solution for trade shows, exhibitions and conferences, removing the stress of event registration so that event organisers can focus on making their next event the best yet. Visit jonas.events for more information. Interesting. So there's a lesson there, right? You, you come up with an idea, you think, you know, you've got something, you put it out into the market, and then you're almost letting the market, to a certain extent, determine how it's going to evolve. Because the one question I wanted to ask you, you know, talent acquisition, huge market, you know, how did you start tapping into that community? How did you, if someone's listening, you know, because we all talk about communities now since the pandemic, verticalization, like vertical, you know, verticals and all this, that, and it's all buzzwords. But obviously, you've been doing it for a while. How do you, how do you build a community? You know, how do you tap into what they want? I think, I think it sort of stemmed from our, our other brand, which is the Resource and Leader One Hundred. Okay. So when we, so what, what that was originally was we had a non-exec director, lady by the name of Mel Hayes, fantastic person. And when we was doing our sort of speed meeting events, we said to Mel, why do we not get real senior, senior buyers at our events or, you know, senior decision makers? And she explained the experience of any TA director going to a conference and it sounded hideous. You know, I, I walk into the room, I'm chased around the room yeah. by vendors. The content is never aimed at me. I'm always the most senior person in the room. So we said, well, build a blueprint of what an event would look like for a senior leader within our market. And we'll, we'll run one and just see how it goes. We, we invited 15 resourcing directors down to Whitsville where we're back, where we live and we're based. We told them to turn their phones off for two days. It was all peer to peer learning. It was round tables. They were running the sessions themselves and, and running the talks. And what we ended up with was a community of TA leaders that wanted to carry that on. Now, we, we scaled that to 100 very quickly, and we kept it 100 for four or five years because it became a manageable community. Yeah. But it was through them that we started to listen to right. what their teams wanted at Wreckfest. So what, what, what is hot content for you right now? What, what, what vendors are you looking for right now? So that, that network of senior leaders really gave us the insight to scale the, sort of the main show, the main event, Wreckfest. So it, it was really through them. So I'd say my... my my recommendation would be, you know, find a small senior group of people mm. that are willing to contribute to help the industry and grow your event and listen to what they say. Yeah, because I think ultimately that also gives the event or products or service or whatever you're delivering to the community the authority, right, I guess as well, because yeah. I guess they are they're visible to, to the people that are coming, right? You don't hide them away, this group of yeah. people. People know who they are. Yeah. Also, I guess they bring people to the event by by default by helping to promote it. Okay, yeah. so and certainly listening to the, to the community and sort of understanding what their needs are. Yeah. So, if I'm not mistaken, in 2019, in Wreckfest in the UK version, you had around 3,000 yeah. people attending. Was that right? Yeah, 3,000. Right, yeah. and then you're obviously planning for the 2020 event. <laughs> it, had, it had such a nice ring to it. Wreckfest 2020 had a really nice <laughs> ring to it. We were all so excited to. Symmetrical. I think all event organizers were, right? Everyone's events were like, you know, Money 2020 or, you know, Finance 2020. Wreckfest 2020 yeah. had a lovely ring to it. Yeah. It's a shame it never got to happen. And then, and then obviously the pan, pandemic hits. Now, I don't want to sort of dwell on that time too much, 
But again, you know, as a business owner, you know, you've invested time, money, resource, everything. You're getting to a certain point. You feel maybe you're at a tipping point where it's going to expand even further. And then this happens. Tell us about that time, if you can. And what decisions you made to sort of keep keep it going because you could have said you know what this is it I, you know can't can't do this going forward we're done you know what, yeah. just just talk about that time if you don't mind briefly no of course i think number one i think everyone felt like they had the rug ripped out from underneath them we've just put on a three thousand person yeah. event it was you know it was a proper festival in 2019 we, we finally hired the field and had the big tops and had the after you know the after party and it finally felt like we'd hit that tipping point where maybe the boulders at the top of the hill now are about to push it over the edge. And, you know, Boris Johnson comes on TV and says no one's allowed to leave the house anymore. It's a bit of an issue as an event yeah. company. Myself and my wife, who's also the co-founder of the business, got together, sat around our, our kitchen table while the kids are upstairs trying to do homeschooling. And we were like, we need some pillars to stick to here for us to get through this because we knew it was going to be a long time. We need some kind of true norms. And what are they going to be? Number one was keep the team, right? Two reasons for that. If we come out of the pandemic and there's a V recovery, it's going to take a while to rehire people we need to run the event. So if we have them here sure. and you know they've got a bit more training with digital, we're going to be able to come out quicker. You're, you're coming out the traps. Also as well, you know, f- firing or making redundant event people in a pandemic is a pretty crappy yeah, thing yeah. to do. Yeah. So you want to do the right thing. We, 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 we went to our clients and really, really, really pushed on the fact that we could do more for them online than potentially in person and that they should, you know, the money they committed to us and the money they'd already spent with us, we could convert online. We could do meetings. We could do webinars. We could do online events. And our partners were really, really fantastic at, at saying, okay, listen, we get it. Like it's a pandemic. You've got our money in your bank. Just show us what you can do with it. So that was the second thing was making sure we didn't come out of the pandemic with a load of money owed to people because at that point you're just fighting an uphill battle, right? Sure. You're trying to sell sponsorship on top of sponsorship. Number three was to, to put our arm around our leadership community. We knew that our senior leaders were gonna be really instrumental when we come out of the pandemic, and we knew they were gonna have a really tough time during the pandemic. So we would do things like, we would just put, we would put open Zoom calls on, on a Friday afternoon with no content, no sponsors, and just say, if you wanna grab a drink at four o'clock, open Zoom, and then just whine about your life, you can do that, it's okay, we're here for you. And, and people did. And we did that for 58 straight weeks where people would just jump on Friday and go, I've had a tough time. You know, th- these are senior leaders in the recruitment market during a pandemic. You know, th- these people go for a really tough time. And the final thing was like, let's be first to market when the pandemic finishes. Let's be ready to have that first event because we knew that the emotional currency that first event would carry with the industry would be huge. And you, it, you never have a bit of an opportunity to get that again. And as much as I loved every speaker we had for that first event outside of the pandemic, we could have had a barking dog on stage nicely because people were just there to connect, to hug, to talk, sure. to meet for the first time or, or meet again. So that was our kind of pillar strategy and we stuck with that yeah. the whole way through. Thank you. What, just what did you learn about yourself during that time, Jamie? I, I worry about really small things and the big things I don't worry about. I can kind of always see an exit yeah. between myself and my wife. I think we're both very good at large scale problem solving. You know, I'm trying to get my son's shoes tied in the morning will frustrate the, the hell out of me and I'll probably have a meltdown, but put a pandemic in front of me and we can go, okay, look, we're gonna, we're gonna work this one out. 
And I, I think that's what I learned about myself. And, and certainly my wife was, you know, we can handle most things that get thrown at us now as a business. Sure. So the first Wreckfest in the UK back was 21? 21 in Margate. Yeah. And, and I guess what we're saying is the... You know, the conversations you have with the community, the fact that you stuck with them, you all stuck together, I guess, to a certain extent, obviously helped you come back through yeah. that. You said you were first first to market. And how was that? How was that for you? How was that for the community? How did they sort of embrace it? So so we, 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 we're not a million miles away from Margate being in Whitstable. Margate has a fantastic outdoor space. So we knew that it was still, it wasn't supposed to be within lockdown. Unfortunately, they pushed it back by a week, and therefore the event technically sat within lockdown by a day. It didn't affect numbers, but but there were still people that were very nervous about being indoors. So everything was outdoors. Very everything was social distanced. We really took people's, I suppose, the way they were feeling at that point yeah. seriously. You know, we had things like we had different color lanyards, which meant you know, don't hug me, don't high five me, just kind of nod from a distance. I may not be feeling you know fantastic mm. right now. And it was just, there was an, it was the emotional outpour. For us as well, it's emotional to come back. You know, you spent two years, two and a half years just hoping for the update from, you know, Boris Johnson to come to say you can go back and do, you know, what you do for, for a living. And eventually you're back. So very emotional. We, we, we took, we made sure that the team were feeling okay about everything because, you know, it's a big step forward. But it was fantastic. And like I say, you know, a lot of people hadn't met each other. A lot of co-workers had never met each other before that particular event so seeing that outpour of emotion was fantastic and something like we'll always be really proud of sure you are listening to the dan assel show inspiring and insightful conversations with event professionals the dan assel show's official venue sponsor is conference and exhibition venue business design center which has just become b corp certified showing its high standards of social and environmental impact for more information visit businessdesigncenter.co.uk. Be notified first about new episodes by following me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify platforms and by subscribing to my YouTube channel. Search Dan Assor. Thank you. And I want to turn our attentions to your decision to go to the US. So you had a few versions that we spoke about in the UK, successful ones. I guess you still accept there's growth to be had in the UK edition. So I'm always interested, and I've had lots of people on this podcast who have then gone off into the States. Some successful, some still sort of learning. And generally, you know, history is littered with companies that outside of the events industry try and take their product or service in the States and it's don't necessarily have a great time. Talk to me about that. Why, Why the US? And then I guess why Tennessee? Tell us about yeah. sort of the, how that came about. So, so why the US? So in 2019, when we did the big rec fest in the park, we decided to bring over a lot of the US influencers. And there was twofold to this. Number one, it was going to make the event feel a lot more international by bringing over some speakers and that the UK market generally don't get to see in person. Maybe online they do, but they didn't get a chance to see them in person. But also the second part of that was we knew at some point we wanted to go to the US, the market's substantially bigger. And at the time, and it still is now, there is a big opportunity for us because a lot of the TA events in the US didn't do well out of the pandemic. And there is a space over there for breakfast. So by bringing over the influencers, we could have a voice in the US of people saying, 
I've been to the UK. You know, I've seen it. I've been there. I've felt the emotion of it all. We need this in the US. So come through the pandemic and we started to say, okay, we need that voice amplified now. So by having 12, 13, 14 of the most influential, loudest voices in the US, it gave us a really solid jump off point. And, you know, why Tennessee? Why Nashville? We spoke to a lot of the TA directors over there and, you know, we said, well, what about Las Vegas? And it's like Las Vegas has been done. There's so many events in Las Vegas. We don't really want to go back to Las Vegas. And when you start talking about Nashville, it has a lot of kudos to it at the moment. It's a place people want to go maybe for a, a social experience. So Wreckfest kind of ties into that. It's a festival. It's the music vibe out there. So there is a, an element of, of synergy between the area and what we wanted Wreckfest to be. And I think it acted as a fantastic backdrop to the event itself because you had people coming saying, I'm going to come down for your event Wednesday, Thursday. I'm going to stay over for the weekend. And and have a weekend in Nashville as well. So I think there was some real value in, in having it there and a synergy created between the city and the event itself. Sure. Actually, what you said is really smart, right? I mean, and I've seen a lot of the American speakers that you had in the UK. And so what you're saying is that was a, a predetermined decision to help support the potential launch in the US, which is... Absolutely. Well, and, and any time, any time they come over, you know, and we spoke, the first thing they say to us afterwards is, "When is this coming to America? When are we going to bring this yeah. over?" Yeah. The plan was twenty twenty. Sure. Obviously, the pandemic took care of that. But no, it was no, it was absolutely pre, uh, pre, predetermined. It was pre-planned, yeah. and you know, by the time we launched, we had the big voices. So, talk to me about the assuming there are differences. Now you're sort of because it happened obviously in mid mid September. Talk to me about the differences yep. that you found in running Wreckfest in the US compared to Wreckfest in the UK. Maybe you can bring to life two or three of the major ones. Yeah, of course. Someone someone said to me in, in the lead up, you're not geo-cloning, you're geo-interpreting. And I think that's a really important thing. You can't just take your show and the way it runs in a certain country and expect it to run exactly the same way in another country. So we kind of went out with, let's not go full crazy breakfast over here. Let's maybe go like 50% and see how yeah. that's taken. It's a, It was a two-day event, number one. That was probably the biggest okay. difference. UK is a one-day event. You can get anywhere in the UK within three hours, three and a half hours. In the US, you can barely get out of right. Tennessee within three hours. So it, it has to be two days for people to make that journey. So that created a big difference. I suppose for us, like if you look at breakfast in the UK, you get to four or five o'clock. The celebration aspect is really heated up. And then you're going into seven, eight o'clock where you've got a, a big headline music act yeah. and people hang around till nine, ten o'clock. By three o'clock, people were leaving in the US. And we were quite nervous about that. We were like, well, hold on a sec, you know, where's everyone off to? But then you think about a two-day event. Usually, well, you've, you've been to them before. By three o'clock, you're like, oh, you know what? I'll get back to the hotel room. I'm going to answer some emails, yeah. record a podcast, get dressed, go out for dinner, and then I'm, I'm back there the next day. The turn-up for day two was six, was 76%, wow. which in, in event terms Huge. is pretty unheard of. Yeah. So, 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 so they, they definitely saw the value. They, I think they wanted to get out, hit up Broadway in Nashville, but then turn up the next day, and they were there till three, three four o'clock the next day. So I think those are, those are the big differences. It wasn't as much celebration. Definitely the content was king. They were there for the content. Like the, the stages were packed for every yeah. single tour yeah. because – you know, it was content, content, content. So I'm glad we didn't land too heavy on the, you know, we didn't take Fatboy Slim over to do the headline act. Let's put it that way. You know, I, I think it was good. Yeah. We landed a little bit more 
the business event, the festival side, and there's a bit in the middle, and that's kind of where it all landed. So thank you. I was going to ask you about the content, and this is, I guess, across the two editions. I, I recently interviewed Hugh Forrest, who's the co-president and chief programming officer of South by Southwest. And he was talking to me about, you know, they have thousands of sessions and everyone wants to speak and all this. And they have a sort of piece of software and they have a committee and this and the other. How do you go about, and now you've got the US edition as well, how do you go about deciding on content? And now, I guess, yeah. deciding on content for which edition, you know? Yeah, it's, 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 I suppose it starts with the data. You've got to find out what the audience wants, first right. of all. You know, that, that's the key thing. So as people sign up, we ask them a lot of information about what sort of content they're interested in. We do a lot of poll surveys out to the entire community. So we start with that and then, and then look, there's a call for papers, like with most events. We whittle that down. We'll, we'll put some budget aside for some of our more kind of, you know, celebrity well-known speakers. So you've got your keynotes to one side as well, but it's getting more difficult. You know, with now with the US next year and the UK, we're probably looking at around 240, 40, 50 speak. No, yeah, 240 speakers. Yeah. So we're actually having to hire people and bring them in as number one speaker liaison yeah. because it's something we don't have, but then also form a committee of people that can then vote on the individual speakers based on video um, submissions that they're putting in. Because it's really hard to tell, especially if someone that hasn't spoke before, maybe on a major stage. You look at a LinkedIn profile, sure. have a phone call. You can kind of go, I kind of get it. Maybe they're going to be okay. But, you know, by sending them a, a video and saying, look, you know, you need to submit the first five minutes of your talk and let's see how you go. So using technology, which we're going to be bringing in. And also, yeah, I think having more resource internally mm. is, is going to be a big thing. And also you yourself are very vocal on like socials in terms of asking for people's opinions. Coming back to that community element and what you just said right at the beginning, ask, you know, speaking to the community about what they want. I guess, you know, platforms like LinkedIn and other social platforms can help us even just get a straw, quick straw poll, right? And you do it continuously. You know, what do you want? What do you yeah. think of this yeah. idea? I know you did it with a lanyard idea, I think, in the UK. I think maybe yeah. you took that yeah. to the States as well about who's looking for work and who's not looking for work. Do you just sometimes, you know, you don't, it, 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 what, I guess what the lesson is there, don't necessarily overthink it. If you've got an idea, maybe put it out there and see what people think about it. Yeah, always test it before yeah. you kind of get it agreed. I mean, we're having to we're having to grow up a little bit as a business. We work with a column of consultancy who have done an amazing job of dragging us kicking and screaming from a, a childlike startup to a, a more yeah. sensible grown up business. Yeah. And they do they do a fantastic job, by the way, as well. When we certainly wouldn't be here without those folks and, and certainly wouldn't have been in the US. But, you know, they're teaching stuff like governance. So yeah. actually having, you know, proper <laughs> board meetings where you have to take ideas and say, I've got this, what do we think? And then you have to get sign off yeah. from, you know, certain people as opposed yeah. to the crazy CEO yeah. that just goes, we're, we're launching in Taiwan tomorrow. How, are you, dealing so with, how do you deal with that personally? Because it's hard. Yeah, I, was gonna, hard. I don't know that well, it's, but from what, you know, it's, it, no. it seems like you, you, you might find that a bit of a, a, a test. Yes, it's it's a it's a steep learning curve. Let's say that it's a, and it's one that Colin would keep reminding me about as well. So no, it's a very it's very steep learning curve. Look, you need adults in the room, and you know, for us, our board and Colin were the adults in the room. You know, the children shouldn't be left to their own devices, and I'm definitely yeah. the biggest child within our business. So yeah, no, it's a steep learning curve, yeah. but we're, we're getting there. It's it's yeah, we're getting there. Okay, just just a few yeah. questions generally about running outdoor events. You know, it wouldn't have passed you by all the issues that happened at Burning Man uh, recently, an early couple yeah. of weeks before your event, right? I think. 
how do you how do you prevent against a situation like you know where the weather is just ridiculous? Yeah, you know, what what would you have done? Or maybe you've had a situation where in the UK, you know, the weather has been terrible. What are the contingency plans? Yeah, I, th- I think in, in in both in the UK and the US, you know, certainly UK, worst case scenario is going to be rain. And you know, I spoke to someone about this other day. They said, "What do you do if it rains?" <laughs> yeah. You got to remember with breakfast. You got to remember with breakfast. First of all, it's eighty percent covered land, right. right? So the stages are covered. The you know the the eating areas are covered. The the actual stands themselves from the vendors are usually about six by six meters covered. So they're kind of like small stage themselves. So there is an element of grab a poncho and, and come along. I think in the UK, I don't think it would prevent a lot of people from attending. It's their event. It's their yeah. celebration. They've booked their travel. They've booked their time. They're going to come along. Okay, what would it mean to logistics of the event? Probably have more people in the tents than outside. You know, that, that's being realistic about it. But we have that emotional currency where I don't think it would affect. Now, in the US, that might be slightly different. The US, if it would have rained this year, it might have been a whole different story. We have to build that up over time and, and, and continue to show that, look, even if it does, you know, yeah. if there is a bit of rain, grab your umbrella, grab a poncho, come along. If not, you're going to miss it for the next 12 months. And I think we did a very good job of establishing that this year. And it's just about building it up over time. But do you, do you generally have to have more sort of contingency plans in place and you think that an indoor event to sort of prevent the, the issues that happen, happen yeah. like Burning Man, you know, people not being able to get out and all that sort of stuff. I, I guess that's a much bigger concern, but still, you know, if, if that's the way you go. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think we, I think there's a lot of things we have to yeah. do that a lot of, regular indoor events don't have to do so we have to put in our own power our own wi-fi yeah. our own water so all, all this stuff is what kind of go, and, and including the contingent stuff as well but it kind of what separates us from most other events and and our ability to execute this scale of different and yeah. i think that's a really key thing if you everyone can do different doing different at scale is the real that's that's the part that is the the magic dust right that that's the difference maker so being able to do that with contingency plans in place at scale is what separates us from most of the other com- uh, competition. Sure. And in terms of future plans for the US, is the idea maybe to go to obviously build up, you know, Nashville, but what about other cities, states? What's the what's the view? I, honestly, it's like with the UK, people say to us, oh, are you going to take breakfast to the Netherlands? We're not. You know, it's it's a two hour, you know, an hour flight. We we think sure. that what we build is fairly special, and if people want to attend, they should be willing to travel. And it's the same with the US as well. You know, if you want to attend breakfast, experience it, come along to Nashville. You know, it's no more than a three hour flight for most people. I, I just think there's only one Glastonbury, right? Okay. You know, so you kind of want to you want to create you want to create something that people are committing and, and putting energy into attending, because if you do that, if you if you give them something that they have to work towards when they get there, their energy is a lot different. Yeah. And and that's what we want to keep with from breakfast. Sure. Now, obviously, it's, it's not just you. It's not just your wife who's a partner in the business. You've got a whole team behind you. How do you go about building a sort of winning team culture? I, I think a lot of our, historically, a lot of our people have come to us from fairly inexperienced part of their life. So, you know, they're coming either directly from university or second job. And I think that's a really important way to, you know, breed the culture within your business. 
we've recently started to hire people from larger event companies as we as we start to scale again you start to need more adults in the room as well and you need to have people that have done this for a few more years so starting to bring in people from some of the the bigger event companies i mean we we operate a four-day work week and have done for the last i think five years now so we pay people for five days they but they don't work fridays so you know that in itself allows people that quality of life that i think events is a difficult gig right it's a tough tough grueling industry it's one of the most stressful industries in the world like if you see any report around stressful jobs it's up there with being a fire person or a, or a police person so you know by giving people that friday that friday off and having it as their own time it gives people more of an opportunity to recharge work-life balance becomes a lot easier and look because of that you know i think people stay with you for longer because it's it's a, it's a work perk and it's one of the best work perks you can get so i think there's that celebrating success is a huge one as well making sure that you know everyone is a part of and and that we acknowledge the fact that everyone's a part you know from from person a to person z you know you're the people that have helped us build this event and acknowledging that and celebrating it as well sure and what does success look like for you jamie and, and also your wife you know can fuck over around in the business what's what's the target I think it's 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 ever evolving. I think the US was definitely a big one for us. You know, coming out of the pandemic, it was just to get back onto terra firma and you know to to run some successful events coming out. Then the US, I think look, the scale of the US is going to be very important to us. Breakfast will go from five thousand, six thousand. US will go from one thousand to two thousand. So clearly, the scale is is in the US. So for me, I think that's you know building the US up to where we can say it's the largest event in the US for talent acquisition. That's the next step now. How do we get to 5,000 people in the US and be able to say we've now got the largest event in Europe and the largest event in the US as well? Sure. So if we are rolling forward, like, I don't know, into we having this conversation in 2027, 2028, what, what you're saying is, is is building up both of those sort of events, any other sort of products uh, in the pipeline yeah. or... Yeah, I, I think I think pro, so. I think probably pushing out into a third area by that point okay. as well. I mean, Australia would probably be the most likely now. We have no official plans, but you know, Australia is a community that we we know very well, and we have some key contacts in. And the same which we've done with the US, we'll now go and do in in Australia and start to build up those voices, those influences. So if we do land there, then you know, the, the, there's a soft landing for us. And just coming to the final couple of questions, uh, you know, I speak to lots of people who have gone into business with a friend, their wife, their husband, and so on. How do you sort of, and maybe you don't, I don't know, how, how do you sort of draw a line between personal and business? Is that always a constant sort of juggling act? It it takes a long, long time. Yeah. And it, we've not always got it right. And we don't, still don't always get it right. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult line to tread but what i will say is having you know a business partner there like that you can um bounce ideas off that you can you know go through so well the pandemic is a great example yeah. we would not have got through the pandemic you know without myself and my wife as a partnership at the forefront because you know you're kind of going for it not as, as a family but as a business sure. so that was probably an area where actually it really paid dividend that we were a working couple partnership business etc because you're kind of facing an entire global change head-on from both the family point of view and the business point of view so yeah it's difficult it's hard to kind of define those lines but once they are then yeah there's a lot of sure. benefit to it. and finally 
what do you love most about working in the events industry? I, what I love most, I think there's that, there's just that payoff for me. And it's, it's building towards something over a period of time and that payoff of being on a day and seeing how people react and seeing how people, how moved they are by the event, what they're learning, but also the difference it's making to their lives. So whether they're connecting with a new client, whether they're learning a new skill, finding a new job, whatever it is, it makes a difference. And I think where I'm so proud of the event space is a lot of people going into the pandemic were saying, oh, in-person events are dead forever now. Why would you, you know, why would you want to you know, slog to an event and get COVID when you can get the content online? The, the, the pandemic proved that there is no replacement for face-to-face, in-person chemistry. It just, it's never been replicated online. The content has, but the actual connection part has never been replicated. And I think that says a lot about the event space. And I think that's why you've seen the event market come back as strongly as it has because that can't be replicated. And, and that's a really, really important thing for me. And I'm, I'm so glad that's the way it went. Because I think, honestly, if you've told me that it's online events forevermore, I probably would have gone and found something else to do. It wasn't for me. Coming out and, and again, seeing the impact it has on people, that's, that's the part. It, it's, it's events with purpose. Yeah. And, and if your purpose is something wider than just you making money and you can achieve that, it's the best thing in the world. That's a great way to end. Jamie, Leonard, thank you so much for your time today. We wish you the very best with Wreckfest in the UK and obviously the second edition of Wreckfest over in the US. Cheers, Dan. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The Dan Assel Show is grateful for the support of headline sponsor Jonas Event Technology, venue sponsor Business Design Centre and event industry supporters TF Connect, Tarsus Group, Terrapin and 19 Group. Be notified first about new episodes by following me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify platforms and by subscribing to my YouTube channel. Search Dan Assault.